This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 will be... We'll be looking tonight at uh, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 5. However, before we uh, get into the text, I want to read just a a portion of this chapter. Uh, This this whole chapter takes on uh, a particular form. Uh, It essentially is a statement of a lawsuit. Uh, The Hebrew word is that it is a reeve. R-I-B in English, but pronounced reeve, a particular form actually known in the ancient Near East uh, for, for uh, pursuing uh, a suit in a court of law, effectively. And um, what this passage essentially is, is the Lord's divorce case against his people. Uh, as we begin uh, study tonight, uh, what, what I'd like to do is for us to just look at verses or read verses 9 through 13, and then we will uh, begin our study. So hear the word of God from chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, even a portion of it like this, as uh, as astonishing and dismaying as in fact it is. Uh, Father, we pray. For your help tonight as we study your word, we pray for the light of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to my mother this morning after the service, and she mentioned to me that someone had had made a comment to her, said something to her about the fact that preachers don't preach on sin anymore. Ever the proud mother, she pointed out that her son preaches on sin. But just so there's no doubt about it, tonight I'm going to preach on sin, uh, just to just to make sure, make sure I'm not going soft. Preaching on sin, of course, because the passage tonight that we are looking at is about sin. It really gets down to something of the essence of sin, but we're going to get to that in due time. Uh, and as, as we studied chapter 1, we saw that the Lord called Jeremiah to serve him as a prophet, called him, in fact, before he had even been born, called him uh, in his life to serve as God's 
spokesman in a difficult day in the declining years of Judah under kings that uh, in some ways were indifferent. Josiah, of course, with his reforms, was a rare bright spot among the kings, but he, he followed one who was astonishingly wicked, Manasseh. He was followed by Jehoiakim, who uh, was really uh, relatively indifferent uh, and uh, lived to see the fall of Jerusalem. But the Lord, having called Jeremiah, then we read that statement of authority in chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. And as we re- read these words, we remember that we're not reading just the words of Jeremiah, just his message, just his thoughts about the political and religious and cultural situation of his day, but he is speaking the very word of God. And as we'll see, the kinds of things that Jeremiah speaks to, the kinds of things that God speaks to in this passage, are things that certainly were not unique uh, to Jeremiah's own day, but uh, we see in our own as well. Well, as we begin this passage, as we say, the Lord is basically building the case for divorce against his people. But it begins on a much brighter spot. It begins in verses 1 through 3 with uh, reflections on a better day, memories of a better day. Look at these verses. Verse 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. One writer suggested uh, that this section in his imagination was God going back and looking through his wedding album. When he had brought his people out of Egypt, were they perfect? No, but that was a day that they followed the Lord. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, a strong word. In fact, the word their devotion is chesed. It's the word that's used in the scripture to refer to God's own covenant faithfulness. And that's how Israel is depicted, is covenantally faithful to the God who has brought them out of Egypt. Her devotion, your love as a bride, as a bride loves her new husband, so Israel loved the Lord. Uh, How Israel followed his lead, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Again, glossing over their imperfections, but it was a day when Israel followed the Lord, when despite their tendencies toward grumbling and complaining, they did follow him. They went to Mount Sinai. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. You touch the bride of God, you pay for it. And so the passage begins by looking back uh, at a much better time. When the Lord brought them out, they were devoted to him. He protected them, but things quickly got ugly. Verse four, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all of the clans of the house of Israel. And so God is about to declare to them uh, how things have gone wrong. He's about to state to them in this court, so to speak, where things have gotten ugly. Now, I want to come back to those verses, but I do want us to jump again to verses 9 through 13, the the passage that we read uh, just a few moments ago. Because while we looked at the memories of a better day, here we really get to the heart of the matter, the essence of sin. Look at verse 9. 
The Lord says, I contend with you. I have this, this suit against you, this case against you with your children's children. Now, as he's talking here about the very essence of sin, first of all, there's the audacity of it. You and I, unfortunately, are so accustomed to sin that it doesn't astonish us. It doesn't shock us. But when it's put in this way, it really does, uh, as the Lord puts it here. He says, go to the coast of Cyprus, go to Kedar, and examine with care. See if there's anything like this that has ever happened before. Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they are no gods? Have you ever known a nation who, while worshiping false gods, changed them for another? Now, yes, pagan religion can evolve, but effectively, they're worshiping the same thing. They're worshiping nature around them. They're worshiping themselves. The name of the false god may change, but the point here is, if you look at these Canaanite nations around, they worship Baal. Baal, you know, uh, Asherah, uh, basically these same fertility gods and goddesses, uh, not a whole lot of change. God says, go see if anything like this has happened before. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So you have these nations worshiping gods who are no gods, and they keep them. They're loyal to them. They're faithful to them. But then you have Israel, who worships the true and living God, and they exchange what the Scriptures describe as their glory for that which does not profit. Shocking, and yet true. But that's exactly what happens when we sin. We are exchanging the one true and living God for a God of our own making. Effectively, ourselves, but also that thing that we choose when we sin, whether it's to vent our anger in a harmful way or uh, to steal or whatever it might be, that becomes the thing that we serve. Ultimately, of course, it is ourselves. I mean, the heart of all pagan religion is you basically worship yourself. You decide what your God is like. You make the God in your image, usually in a way. Of course, it's advantageous to you. And then you live accordingly. So first, the astonishment of this exchange, the, 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 the audacity of it. But then the problem of it. In looking at the very essence of sin, uh, you really can't get much better than Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. There's two sides to this coin. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And the flip side, having done that, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Now, in that area of the world, being arid and typically dry as it was in uh, wilderness areas, uh, water, of course, was always a concern. Uh, very interesting, last summer when we were in Peru, uh, the area where we were in Trujillo along the Pacific coast is very dry, very, very little rainfall. In fact, Houses are often open. The walls just wouldn't be there. You just go into an outside court. And the weather was temperate enough and dry enough to where it really was not a problem at all. In fact, unless places were irrigated, there was just dirt. Nothing could grow. They didn't get the, the rain. Well, uh, Palestine perhaps wasn't quite that dry in most places, but it typically was a fairly arid climate. 
And so farmers, unless they had a ready spring, and sometimes even if they did, would, would build cisterns, dig cisterns out to collect water, hold water. And uh, God is saying that they basically have forsaken him, the source of living water, real water, life, and have turned to these cisterns, broken cisterns, cracked. They would, they would surface them with plaster to make them as watertight as possible. But they're cracked. These idols they serve are like cracked cisterns. They just leak water. There's nothing there. You go to them looking for something and you come up empty. And that is the very essence of sin, to forsake God himself, the fountain of living waters, and to go looking for water in dry places where we're sure not to find it. That's sin. To turn away from God who satisfies the soul and look to things that do that do not. Uh, ultimately, sin is a way of trying to address the emptiness in our souls. It's, it's looking for something in the place of God to satisfy our spiritual hunger. And how significant in, in John, John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, John chapter 7 where Jesus is the festival in Jerusalem, where he says, come to me and I'll give you living water. Come to me, whoever drinks of me will never be thirsty again. Just a direct reference. Jesus himself, the fountain of living waters. So the very essence of sin is to turn away from the one who gives life and look for life in things ultimately that will yield only, first, lack of satisfaction, second, death. That's where we are. That's where we were before Christ. In Christ, that's where we are every time we sin. We're turning away from our Savior, looking to those things that ultimately don't satisfy, and apart from him would bring death. And that's where so many people around us are. You know, when Jesus would look at the crowds and feel compassion for them, as we've talked about in Matthew, he's looking at people who have this hunger of soul, this thirst of soul, and they're looking in all kinds of places and they come up empty when what they need is to be reconciled to the God they were made to know. And when Jesus sees them, he feels compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're hungry. They're trying to eat all kinds of stuff that's not edible spiritually speaking, and Jesus knows that he can feed them and he can provide for them. And so this is really the essence of sin, to turn away from God who gives life, looking to those things that do not give life. Well, we've looked at memories of a better day. We've looked here at the essence of sin as the Lord lays it out before his people. But then the rest of this passage, going on into chapter 3, God presents his evidence against Israel. He presents them with the realities of rebellion. Because it is a rebellion. When we sin against God, it is a rebellion against him. And so he makes the case here. What are the realities of their sin? What's the reality of our sin? Well, first of all, one reality of sin has to do with the fact that it involves forgetfulness. Forgetting God. Look at verse 4. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You know, God, as a, as a, as a grieved husband, saying, what, what fault did he find with me that led you to this behavior? They didn't say, verse 6, where is, the, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? They didn't say that. They didn't call out to the Lord. Where's the Lord? 
in their time of need. Verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? The priests, the ones who were to uh, be the intermediaries, the go-betweens between God and his people, who were to teach the people the law, who were to offer up the sacrifices. They didn't think to ask, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. Those who were supposed to teach, be experts in the word of God, didn't know him. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. I like that. It's not there in the Hebrew, that word play, but it is in English. Remember this morning we looked at the word play on the name of Peter and the rock, Petros, Petra. Well, this isn't in Hebrew, but I think it's a wonderful word play in English. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but I love it. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. They forgot God. They didn't think to ask, where is the Lord? Even the ones who should have led the people didn't think to ask, where is the Lord? Didn't know him. Didn't uh, Even the shepherds transgressed. Even the prophets are prophesying, not thus says the Lord, but thus says Baal. And taught the people things and said to them, pursued things that didn't profit. You see, they basically forgot God. Their minds were elsewhere. I think it's significant that, uh, that Revelation chapter 2 speaks to this. That one, of the, one aspect of sin, one reality of sin, is simply forgetfulness. We forget about God. We forget who he is. We forget what he's done for us. God speaks there of how he provided, how he led them, provided and brought them into the land. They just don't even think about it. You know, in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, the letters to the churches, the letter to the church in Ephesus, they've forgotten their love, their first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And the prescription is this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's the first thing he says? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember where you once were. Remember how you walked with me. Remember how you loved me. Remember all that I have done for you. Part of the reality of sin is we just forget who God is and what he's done for us. Another reality of sin that's discussed here is the consequences of sin. It's curious. TVs, shows, movies, uh, even books uh, often depict the pleasures of sin, and they are real, without depicting the consequences of sin. But we don't get away with that in real life. In real life, sin does have consequences. Uh, Look at verses um, 9 through 19. Or rather, let's look at 14 through 19. We've already looked at 9 through 13. Look at 14 through 19. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? Israel wasn't a slave. They were in slavery. God brought them out of slavery. He delivered them. He made them free. Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They've roared loudly. They've made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Toppenese have shaved the crown of your head. 
slave. Part of the consequences of their sin is that God has brought um, Assyria, other nations against them, and reduced them back to uh, this level of slavery that they hadn't known really since they were in Egypt. And look at what he says, verse 17, this must have been painful to hear. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? What do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? They are looking for water in these other nations, looking for help. These nations can't help them. In fact, they hurt them. Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. Underline that in your Bible. Think about that. The consequences. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And they were experiencing it in Jeremiah's day. As the, twel- as the, uh, the northern tribes had already been taken into captivity by Assyria, as the land of Judah was being ravaged, as Jerusalem itself was threatened... What kind of blessing was that? Why? Because they had turned against the Lord and they had no one to blame but themselves. Have you not brought this upon yourself? Verse 17. There's a proverb, uh, 19 verse 3, I think is, is very powerful, very, um, very relevant, very interesting insight into human nature, fallen human nature. It's uh, Proverbs 19.3. Listen to this. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin... When a man's own folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. These are known cases where someone's angry at God for something that's happened. And yet they really brought it on themselves. Our own folly brings us to ruin. And yet we blame God, rage against God. And that's what's happening here. He says, you have nobody to blame but yourself. Why do you complain to God? Why do you complain that God has let you down? He's letting these nations come and, and, and take your land. Well, you have only yourself to blame. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. The consequences of sin. Judah, Jerusalem was experiencing those consequences of turning from the Lord, turning to drink the waters of Egypt, of the Nile, drink the waters of Euphrates. And instead of being a help to them, Israel, now Judah, was crumbling. So the, the realities of rebellion against God, forgetfulness, consequences of sin. This passage also is filled with images of sin. I have to warn you, they're a little graphic. Verse 20, images of sin. First is that of a beast shaking off its yoke. Look at verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. The Lord's saying, I, I took off the yoke of Egypt, brought you to myself, but you basically threw off my yoke. Remember Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Israel wouldn't wear the yoke. God's light yoke. They, they threw off. He threw off the yoke of Egypt, brought them to himself, but they refused to serve him. Like an animal throwing off a, a yoke. Uh, like a prostitute. Yes, on every high hill, 
and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Common prostitute. The high places, by the way, you read that in the scriptures, the high places were often pagan shrines, worship places um, that were there. God's saying you became like a common prostitute. Now, some of the things they did may have involved sexual sin, involvement in some of these pagan uh, fertility religions like Baal worship. But the point is really more their relationship to God. They're, they're pursuing Baal, or even they're pursuing alliances with Egypt or Assyria. The sexual sin is the image, but it really goes back to their faithfulness or lack thereof to God. But that's the image that's used here of being a wild vine. Look at, um, look at the next verse there, verse 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Like Isaiah 5, you know, where God talks about planting the grapes, good grapes, but they became wild grapes. Well, the same thing here. God says, I planted you, I brought you out to myself, and you just became this overgrown, degenerate, wild vine. A stain you can't remove. Look at verse 22. Though you wash yourself with lye, pretty caustic stuff, and use much soap, The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. See, we can't remove our own guilt. We cannot, through whatever effort, through whatever means, wash away the stain of our sin before God. Only Jesus can do that. And that's the image that's used here. They've got this deep stain that cannot be removed. The image of animals in heat how can you say, verse 23, how can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you've done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. So just like an animal running here and there, uh, looking for someone, looking for some other animal with whom to mate. That's that was Israel. That was Judah. The image that's there. Look at verse twenty-seven. The image here of uh, of foolishness. Verse twenty-six and twenty-seven. As a thief is shamed with caught, so the house of Israel will be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, who say to a tree, "You are my father," and to a stone. You gave me birth. Pitiful. Foolish. But that's the image that's used here. And even compounding it, the tree, saying to the tree, you are my father. The tree was the Asherah pole. It was feminine. He's saying, yes, you go into these pagan rituals. You don't even get them right. The wooden pole was the Asherah pole. It was a feminine deity. And you call it your father. You're that confused. The rock represented Baal, a masculine deity. You say to the stone, you gave me birth. You can't even get it right. You can't even get the pagan religion right. That's how confused you are. That's how foolish you are. So foolishness, the image that's there. And futility is another image. Look at verse 28. Well, look at verse 27 again. They've turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble... They get in trouble. They say, arise and save us. But the Lord says back to them, 
But where are your gods you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. You come crying to me for help. Go to your gods. There's many as your cities. You've got all these different gods all over. Go to them. Look to them for help. Why do you come running to me? Go to your gods. So the futility of sin. And again, these all have to do with, with Judah, with Jerusalem. And yet these same images are true of us in our sin, in our waywardness, and certainly of those who don't know the, the Lord. And so these, these graphic and, and vile images show us the nature of sin. But another reality of sin, in our sinfulness, we tend to take on an unteachable nature. And we see this. Look at verse 29. Why do you contend with me? You all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a a ravening lion. God says, I tried to correct you. I tried to rebuke you. You wouldn't take correction. I sent the prophets to you and you killed them. They won't listen. They refuse to be teachable. They refuse to hear. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Ask any bride what she wore on her wedding day. She will tell you exactly what she wore on her wedding day, no matter how long ago it was. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. They've even said, we'll come to you no more. How does Israel respond to this? Well, we've already seen some of it. Why do you say I'm not unclean? Why do you say I've not gone after the Baals? But they're in a state of denial. They, they, they won't receive this. Look at verse 33. They're in denial as to their guilt. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. He's saying you're so bad, you've got things to teach prostitutes. Wow. Also, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor, the oppression, the injustice. You did not find them breaking in. Yet, in spite of all these things, everything the Lord has brought up, including these two things he just mentioned, you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger's turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. They were impenitent. They denied their guilt. They said, I'm not sinned. We've not done anything wrong. God says, I'm going to judge you because you refuse to acknowledge your sin. How much you go about changing your way, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. Uh, from it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. It's a gesture of humility or surrender. For the Lord has rejected those whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. They, they refuse to acknowledge their guilt. They're in denial about their guiltiness. They're also in denial about God. Look at chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? That's looking back to Deuteronomy 24, uh, the first few verses there, that prohibit 
uh, a, a man who's divorced his wife, she becomes the, the wife of another from ever becoming his wife again. Uh, part of the reason was to regulate and discourage uh, just random or thoughtless divorce, to discourage divorce at all. Now, he says, what if this happens? Would that land not be greatly polluted? You've played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. The point they're having to do with a, a, a robber, a thief, an ambush. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a, of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to meet my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you've spoken, but you've done all the evil that you could. They're in denial about their guilt, and God says, fine, I'm going to bring Egypt to you against you just as I did Assyria. They're in denial about their relationship with God. They think they can go out and just play the, the whore, and just go out and you know, be with anybody, and just come back to God and everything's okay. God says, no, I've helped withheld the showers. Actually, there were droughts. He may be referring to specific droughts that are on record. And yet, still just brazen in her sin. My father, you were the friend of my youth. Hollow, hollow words, deceitful words, this wayward wife speaks to her husband. But I want to turn back. I don't know if you noticed or not, there's a verse there that we didn't look at that to me is, is a painful statement. It's, I think, somewhat of a wistful statement. Look at verse 25. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. In other words, don't go to these efforts to pursue these other alliances that you pursue. But notice Israel's response. But you said, verse 25, but you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. It's hopeless. That sounds good, Jeremiah, but it's hopeless. Is it? Of course not. Yes, they've given themselves in these ways. Yes, they made these alliances. Yes, they pursued securing their own uh, protection and salvation rather than looking to the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. But is it hopeless? Of course not. Yes, they're stained, but what can wash away that stain? Well, the Lord himself, or as the hymn says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can break the power of sin so that it's not hopeless? Well, nothing but our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ to new life. Now, in this passage, God effectively is making his case for divorce against his unfaithful bride. Israel's defense is weak. It's lame. God has an airtight case. But does he go through with it? Does he divorce his bride? No. Like Hosea purchasing back Gomer, the Lord buys her back. Ephesians 5 speaks to God himself buying back his bride. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, the Lord himself paid the penalty for his people's waywardness to buy her back from her bondage, to buy her back from her slavery, to cleanse her from her defilement to himself. You and I are that church. And Christ has purchased us with his own blood. And he is making us to be that bride that he deserves. Think about that the next time you're tempted to forget God. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't want to forget you. We don't want to forget the blood of the cross that is both an expression of the vileness of our sin and the greatness of your love. Father, I pray that we would not forget who you are and what you have done for us, that we would not be a wayward people, an adulterous people. And Father, we who live in the light and the blessing of the new covenant are all the more without excuse than even Old Testament Israel. As blessed as they were, how much more blessed with light and truth and revelation are we? Father, overwhelm us with your love as we reflect on your grace, Father. Overwhelm our hearts with love to you that we, your church, your people, individually, as believers, as families, as a congregation, as a denomination, as a church, would be faithful to you, O Lord, as a radiant, pure bride is faithful to her husband. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.